Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer Joe Solo. But first of all, let's talk about re-recording masters. I'm sure you've heard, especially old songs from the 60s and 70s, you heard them play back and you'd go, that doesn't sound like the original. And you know what? You'd be right, because in many cases, that's a re-record. In order for the artist or band to actually make more money, what they do is they go back and they re-record their most famous songs, and then perhaps they're making all the publishing, plus they're making more from streaming, so it works out to their advantage. So this concept recently came up again when Taylor Swift's former record label, Big Machine, was purchased by Scooter Braun's media company. Now, the big deal about that is Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun have a big conflict. And he's probably the last person that Taylor wants to have in control of her music. The question kept on coming up, why can't she go out and just re-record all of her songs again? Well, it turns out that's not possible because record labels have been hip to this for a long, long time. The idea of re-recording your masters came about way back in 1960 with the Everly Brothers. They were originally on Cadence Records and then were signed to Warner's and decided that they would go and re-record what they had done on Cadence. And of course, there was no restriction at all, but record labels saw that and decided, (laughs) we don't want that happening to us. So then in all contracts since then, they put in re-recording restrictions. Now, basically what this says is you can't record a new version of a song if you're signed to a record label, for X number of years. And after those number of years, sure, then you can go do it. Usually it's the length of the contract, whatever the length of the contract term is. It's the length of maybe a few years after that. And the reason for this, it prevents an artist or a band from creating a special version just for TV or film placement because the record label wants to make that money. So if you record a separate version of that song that the record company has no piece in, well, they're obviously not able to make money on you. And if they spent a whole bunch of money in advance to you or marketing costs or whatever, they want to recoup that. Producers actually have the same clause, believe it or not. And it's a little far-fetched in a way, but what it says is you can't basically produce the same album for a different artist. Now, like I say, it's far-fetched because you won't be able to because the conditions are going to be so different. But that's their way of protecting themselves from turning around and maybe taking exactly the same record and just putting in a new vocalist, for instance. Now, the reason why these artists from the 60s and 70s can get away with it was because they're past the length of their contract. The contract is actually over. So even though they may not have gotten their copyright control back on those songs, they're still free to be able to go and do different versions. But I'm sure that, like me, sometimes you're not satisfied. You listen to a version, you go, that's not the same as I remember it. So it's the same song, but there's usually something different because it's really hard to nail it a second time. And if you've ever tried to do it, you know it's virtually impossible. It's really hard with mixes in the old days on an analog console where you'd have to go back a week later to fix something like uh, 2dB hotter on the hi-hat or 2dB lower on the vocal or whatever it might be, and you found that, wow, everything has changed. So this is very difficult. 
Also, the fact of the matter is that re-recording costs a lot of time and in many cases money, even if you have your own studio. Then on top of it, you're putting out a product that's actually competing with your former masters, which may not be very good business. So all of this talk about Taylor Swift re-recording her catalog that was just pulled out from under her by Scooter Braun is probably a little far-fetched because it's not going to happen because of contract restrictions. Now you know why. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now we're about to transition to a 64-bit world when it comes to computer digital audio workstations. We're finding this out, especially on a Mac. If you own a Mac, you're probably seeing a prompt that's coming up that's saying, app is not optimized for your Mac and needs to be updated. Well, what that means is you're running a 32-bit application and pretty soon it has to be updated to a 64-bit application because this latest operating system mojave is the last to be able to run 32-bit apps so from here on in as soon as the next one is released we're going to be 64-bit now what's the big deal at 64-bit you know when it comes down to it all it is is it allows the app to be able to access a lot more memory and what that means is things could be a little bit speedier but more than anything you get more power per session. You can have a lot more plugins and you won't have any performance degradation, which we know now we get hiccups, we get stalls sometimes where it says you have too many plugins, for instance. So this will go away. And that's a good thing, especially now since so many of our sessions are huge. Just try finding a session these days under 50, 60 tracks, and most of them are beyond 100. Now, there's an easy way to find out what apps need upgrading. If you're on a Mac, go to the Apple menu and select About This Mac, and then hit System Report. And then halfway down the page, it says Software. Click on that in Applications. And over on the right, there's a column that says 64-bit. And it will tell you yes, no, meaning yes, this is a 64-bit app. No, it isn't. On a PC, go to the system information window and you can find out there. So the point of all of this is be aware that pretty soon many of the apps that we have won't work on upcoming operating systems unless they're upgraded. My guest today is Joe Solo, who turned a chance meeting with Macy Gray into a 17-year journey that culminated in a Grammy win, a double platinum album, and a hit MTV video. Joe soon transitioned into the world of music publishing as a head staff writer and producer for Paramount's famous music publishing division. Since then, he's had hundreds of professional collaborations and over 2,000 song placements in film, TV shows, video games, and commercials. Joe is now CEO of Joe Solo Music and Entertainment, his multimedia record label, publishing, artist development, and record production company. 
He's also coaching and inspiring rising music and songwriting talent worldwide through his Music Success Workshop division. During the interview, we spoke about what makes a great demo, Joe's approach to production, blending opposite song elements, his Music Success Workshop, and much more. I spoke with Joe live via Skype from his home in Los Angeles. You're from Ohio, right? Yeah, a city called Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. Good rock and roll town. Yeah, yeah. So, well, how far back do you want me to go? Uh, well, I'm curious how a kid from Shaker Heights makes it to Hollywood. Well, um, somewhere around the age of 14, after being in a bunch of rock and roll and funk bands, I wanted to go for it in music. And that, that's about when I decided to make music my life. And uh, I went to college for a year. Well, really a half a year, because the second semester I'd already decided to to quit college and go for it in music. So the second semester, I was I was already in L.A., even though I was in school in New York. Um, so I came out to L.A., and I uh, had a lot of parental support, you know, not, not so much financially, but emotionally, a little financial, too. And um, they were into it. My, my uh, grandfather and his 11 aunts and uncles were all vaudeville entertainers back in the day. So my dad was excited when I'm like, I really want to go for it in music. You know, he was, he was all behind me. Um, and uh, I started playing in different bands. And I was also getting my production chops honed. I was working, working in other recording studios, learning, learning, learning. And um, had my own little studio I was building. And uh, the band thing wasn't really going anywhere, and it was costing a lot of money. It was the heyday of pay-to-play. Yeah. And, um, you know, for those of you who don't know what that is, when you had to buy all the tickets for a particular performance and then sell them yourself instead of have the club sell them. And, um, and the band I was in, uh, looking back, wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. We didn't get much label attention. And um, at the same time, I was... Uh, producing everything I could get my ears on, all styles, and uh, uh, taking out ads in uh, Music Connection magazine to get hired as a producer with very low rates because I wanted to be paid to learn how to produce different styles. And so I ended up getting a lot of clients and building things from there. And that started taking off. And uh, also I had, uh, at the same time, met Macy Gray at this Beverly Hills diner and um, started developing her. And uh, so eventually there was like a fork in the road. Do I stick with the band thing or should I go more the producer-songwriter route? And I decided to go the producer-songwriter route. And uh, eventually when Macy broke through is when I broke through and I signed an a international publishing deal with Famous Music, mm-hmm. which at the time was Paramount's publishing division. Now they got absorbed by Sony. Um, then build things from there, you know, leverage things from there. So Macy was the big break then. Yeah, absolutely. And it it took a long time. Um, We first met in 1985 and it took about 17 years of development to get through. And we, we tried all kinds of things and all kinds of styles. We had various record deals that fell through or we made the record, but it never got released. You know, and you learn you learn from each situation. You embrace it, and you learn, and then move forward. But uh, I think the neat thing is, is that when I was 14, I made that first decision to make music my life, 
in my heart, I made a full hearted commitment to always stick with it, to never quit, like no matter what. And when I met her at this Beverly Hills diner, it was called Larry Parker's Beverly Hills Diner. Uh, I know it. You know the place? Remember that? They had Shalom Sherman come in late <laughs> at night, if you remember that guy. <laughs> yeah. He would entertain everybody after they came there from the clubs. So she was a cashier there, and it was the middle of the day, and I'm checking out, and she's like, hey, are you a musician? And I'm like, yeah, I, I write, I produce, I play guitar, piano. Uh, and she's like, are you any good? And I'm like, I came out to L.A. to be a driving force in music. And she's like, well, I'm a singer-songwriter, and we should work together. I'm like, okay, well, why not, you know? This uh, lady with a trippy voice out of nowhere is asking me to work with her. Maybe it's an opportunity. So we get together the next day, and she's warming up uh, in the vocal booth, which, of course, is a euphemism for what was at the time the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm listening to her sing, and after about five minutes, I get on the talk back mic, and I say, could you come out here? I want to talk to you for a second. So she comes out, and I said, I will commit right now, no matter how long it takes and no matter what we have to do, to stick with you until we make it big. It took 17 years. That's pretty impressive that you would stick it out that long, and I don't mean from the standpoint of loyalty, just the fact that you believe so much. And what she was doing and what you were doing with her that you would hang in that long that that's an enormously long time well that's what commitment means when you say no matter what you mean no matter what you yeah. know that's it's easy to commit to something when things are going great it's when they're not going so great that will separate you know the heroes from the zeros and uh i would say the road to music success is just littered with the heartbreak of quitters yeah now, if you discover music isn't for you and you find some other passion in life, I don't view that really as quitting because, you know, it's not about making it big. It's about having a meaningful life that you enjoy. But I've seen a lot of people quit, but that, that music dream doesn't die. And then they have a lot of regret as they get older and older. They start wondering, well, you know, they see the other friends of theirs be successful and wondering if it would have happened for them, or maybe there's still something they can still do, which there is. Um, you could always get songs placed in film and TV. That doesn't really require youth or, uh, or any kind of image. But yeah, so I guess my motto is don't quit ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so then you get signed to Famous Music, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your focus changed a little bit to um, more of a writer then, right? Uh, well, yes and no. Well, their their financial interest is in the writing, but they hired me as the head producer for pop rock and hip hop because this was this was at a time when mere demos started to not really do the trick in terms of getting people signed and making things happen. the uh, The level of the game was such that broadcast quality masters were now being turned into A&R people, and that's what they were getting used to hearing. And so the fact that I could produce was was a big part of that deal. So that when they were pitching songs to different people or for film and TV or commercials, they didn't have like a facsimile of the song or a demo of the song. They had the finished product right there. They didn't have to imagine what it would sound like in the big studio. They got it right there. 
So it made it made it a lot easier for them to get placements. Uh, although I also learned that if you make it sound too perfect in the vocal area and you pitch to a certain artist, there's nothing for them to do. Yeah. Like we did a, a, me and these two ladies from Nashville, we wrote this song, uh, like a Wilson Phillips song. And the girls who sang it, they, they, they sounded so much like Wilson Phillips and nailed the harmonies so well that the song was rejected specifically because there was nothing for Wilson Phillips to actually do or add. They could replace the vocals and it would sound pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's no fun for them, you know, so I learned a good lesson there. You know, I would have been better off not making it in exactly the Wilson Phillips style and then pitching to them. Yeah. So there's lessons everywhere at every level. You know, it's funny you should mention about doing uh, broadcast quality masters. I came up in a time where you were always told, don't worry about the demo because we can hear through it. We hear exactly what it's like with the finished product. I never believed that for a second. I always thought the better you can make it, the better they can hear it. But, you know, you get that pushback at one point in time. I know it's not like that now, but at one point in time, you get the pushback going, you know, no, you know, piano vocal is fine or guitar vocal, that's fine. I always thought, no, nah, I don't know. I don't buy that. Well, it's certainly not like that in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, although I'll say this, uh, I'm of the opinion that either you have a real seasoned production, because when I say broadcast quality master, I'm not just t- talking about the engineering and mixing, but the heart and the authenticity and the vibe and the soul of the song, all that has to come together, as well as you know, real concrete engineering and mixing and mastering. I say you either have that, which is just the best representation of what your music is, uh, or you put together like a real simple janky iPhone demo, but something that's like halfway in between, it has this effect on people, especially in the industry where like it's purporting to be finished, but it's not. And so it comes off as like something's, the song's not registering with me. It's not doing it for me. Whereas the simple stripped down demo is so obviously not a record that the listener doesn't judge it as one. Yeah. Obviously, it's better to have, you know, a seasoned, produced, finished master than a piano vocal demo on your iPhone. But there is this counterintuitive thing where we'll just go as best as we can with with what we have. But I say either go all the way or just keep it real simple. Otherwise, you're just going to confuse people. Yeah, I think you're right, definitely. Well, let's talk about production for a second. You've done a lot of it, obviously, and you worked in a lot of different genres with a lot of different acts. Do you have the same approach for every artist, same general approach? Does it vary by genre? Well, the I mean, the general approach is to serve the song and serve the vocal first, Um you know, if, 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 uh, and to serve the artist because they're trying to get a story or an emotion or a combination from what's in their heart and head into the listener's heart and head. So every, every question, every decision goes into, into the recording is, does it serve that purpose? Are we compelling 
the listener to be moved in some way, whether they're supposed to feel heartbreak or get up and celebrate and dance, you know, celebration time, come on. I'm no singer, but, you know, there's a song that sounds and feels like the very lyrics they're singing, which is celebration, you know. Um, And everything has to serve that. And it's got to make the vocalist or the band or whoever the stars are sound like freaking stars. It's got to make them sound like stars coming out of those speakers, big and huge and bold and clear, or in some cases, not so clear. If you're doing more of a a street thing or a hip hop thing, it's got to have some grit and some dirt and it can't be hyper clean. So the general concept is the same, but how that approach translates into actually making the record is different for each act that I work with. Because each act is different, the song is different, what they want is different, what I hear and recommend is going to be different. And even it depends on like what the goal of the recording is. Is the goal to get them signed? Are they already signed and the goal is to win them more fans? Are they an independent act and they don't care about getting signed? They just want a uh, certain portrayal of their song. These are all different records. Yeah. You know, if uh, I had a client, I had a client in and he wanted to be known as like, like the top harmonica player in the world, but in a pop paradigm. So when he brought in his demo, it really featured the harmonica playing a lot. And, you know, I'm like, look, Maybe we could cut out the 64-bar harmonica solo intro at the beginning of the song. If you're really going to the pop world and lace the song with, with little harmonic hooks and licks in between, feature it during a solo section, and then at the end of the song again. But we're not going to start out with a big, long harmonica solo like, like, like he had recorded originally. And uh, it took a li- it took a little bit for him to wrap his brain around that because he had lived with his recordings for so long, his demos, that to hear this whole other seasoned producer perspective was kind of jarring. Yeah. So a lot of making a record is psychological. A lot of it. I'd say ninety percent of it is psychology, and understanding the artist, getting inside their head, and then doing whatever it is you have to do to understand their music, and then make it larger than life for them. Okay, you just mentioned something about this artist that wants to go in a pop direction. That being said, the song form has changed so much because of streaming. And now there's no big, long intros. There's hard endings. They get to the chorus as as soon as possible. There's no such thing as solos and even bridges sometimes. And the songs are short. I'm sure you've noticed that too, right? Well, yeah, especially as a guitar player, over the, you know, over the decades, the guitar has gone from the forefront featured instrument to much more part of the rhythm section, if at all. Yeah, um, being there, so yeah, I've, I've noticed all kinds of changes. How does that affect how you approach a song? Hmm, that's a great question. I don't know if I have a good answer for you. I because. If you're doing if you're doing what's already being done today, 
by the time you finish a record and the label sets it up for marketing and everything like that, it's a year or two later, your old news coming right out of the gate. So I'm thinking, where do I want to push it? Where do I want to take the fashion of music, the style, and, and, and push the envelope somewhere else? So I'm not necessarily thinking, well, this is what's happening right now today, so let's do it like this. I'm almost thinking the opposite. Like, there was a time when you had songs that had an intro and then it was repeated at the end of the song as an outro, and then, but never that part in between. And to bring things like that back, or, you know, I understand getting to the chorus quickly, don't bore us, get us to the chorus, right? That's the hook, that's the cells. So, hey, why not start out the song with maybe like a half chorus? Give them a little taste of it, and then you bought yourself some time, and you can get, you know, uh, a nice long first verse and get ly some lyrical depth, and then get back to that chorus because you've already given them a taste. Yeah. Now, there's different things that you can try and do without being so outrageously different that no one's going to relate to you. You don't want to do that either. It's a balance. One thing I never realized with song forms was the long intros and long outros actually served a purpose. And that was, it was space for a radio DJ to talk over. Mm -hmm. And it never kind of dawned on me until, until later where it's like, oh yeah, there, there's a real reason why it's 15 seconds long in the intro and, and the outro. But radio isn't so much a factor anymore so that doesn't matter so now we see everything starting right in the chorus yeah and, you know. and we don't hear radio personalities really talk over the song in that fm way of yesteryear yeah um it's it's yes it's much i think what's happened is the audience in general has gotten very add with so much information in the digital age so much entertainment possibility you got to grab them right away mm. hold their interest and maintain listener interest throughout the song no matter what now, there's a way to do that there's a concept i have called multi-dimensional dynamic juxtaposition which is a very fancy way of saying blending opposites and, and I talk about this stuff in a lot of my educational materials, you know, that, that I offer. In order to maintain listener interest in this ADD world, it's important to produce in such a way that there is constant sonic evolution throughout the temporal linear experience of the song Things are always changing, growing, crescendoing, decrescendoing, lots of dynamics, but not just volume dynamics, multi-dimensional dynamics. So you have dynamics in tonality. You have clean versus dirty. You got mono versus stereo, thick versus thin, layered versus single, uh, electronic versus organic. I, I could rattle off another hundred of these. Sure. And by combining those together in two different ways, you can have some really cool arrangements that maintain listener interest. And, and the first way is, combined, is what I call the vertical blend. 
it's the blend within a single section of a song. And then you have the horizontal blend, the blend of each section as it changes from section to section. Yeah. And if you listen closely to a to a good production, it never gets boring. There's new things being introduced all the time. There's little hooks that are being introduced. And not just obvious ones, but little hooks in the background that fit together with other little hooks, like a little puzzle that becomes what nowadays is called the beat. Yeah, yeah. But what they, what's called the beat, especially like in EDM music or in hip-hop, isn't really just the beat. It's really the whole background soundscape that is created uh, to support vocal. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's, that's a quick overview of multidimensional dynamic juxtaposition. I never heard it described like that. Let's talk about television and commercials and films, and you've had music in all of them, right? Yeah, many. So that being said, is your approach to making, to creating for that part of the business different than it is with the arts? And, and I, I guess it is from the standpoint, you're serving a, a different entity at that point. Instead of serving the artist and what they're trying to do, you're serving whatever the program that, that is. That is an excellent point. Uh, let's say you're creating a background score for, um, here, let me give you a real life example. Fox Sports hired me to create a library of music whose job it was, was to keep the adrenaline high during their sports shows to minimize the changing of the channel with the remote control. That's what the job of the music was, was to keep the adrenaline up. That's a very different job than the job of storytelling for a singer-songwriter. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so, so depending on how the music and the recording is supposed to be used and what kind of effect it's supposed to have on the listener will change how it's constructed or how I approach the construction of it. So, I, so we ask ourselves, what is the job of this recording? And then construct it in such a way so that it does that job. You mentioned before about things you teach and, and the courses and everything. I want to go there for a second. You have uh, something called the Music Success Workshop. Describe that, please. What is that? That's a division in my company where I'm, through, through a variety of medium, I'm teaching people how to be successful in music. And when I say successful, I want to make a definition of what I believe successful in music means. So I don't think it means that you're the next Jay-Z or Beyonce. It's that, but that happens to very few people. I say if you could pay the bills and live the lifestyle you want to live doing what you love to do, you're a success. You don't have to be a superstar to be considered to be successful. And you don't even have to be an artist, even if you started out as an artist, you might discover that it's not happening for you, but there might be other areas of the music industry that are very satisfying, fulfilling, and you can still follow your passion for music and, and be successful that way. So I think it's important to keep an open mind, you know, um, but the, the, the company's mission is to help as many people as possible maximize their music dream uh, to create security for my family in the long term and to have fun while doing it. And that's our company mission statement right there. Bing, bang, boom. Now, that being said, 
you know, you, you mentioned, I guess the way to put it would be uh, making a living is a new success, and it's certainly true. But that being said, it is different for everybody, which means that everyone's expectation is different, and that must be difficult to meet from your standpoint, I would think. Well, no, I, I, I can't predict. I, I can't say there's no formula for success. If there was, we'd all be big, rich rock stars. Yeah. Uh, in which case, none of us would be big, rich rock stars because we'd be everywhere. <laughs> we'd have no value. What I can do is I can arm people with the best information from deep inside the industry based on my 30 years of experience and observations and a proclivity that I have to explain things and break them down for people so that they can really understand and embrace it. And to point out certain mistakes that people tend to make that don't work, things that don't work and things that people tend to do that seem to have been more successful. And then the artist has to pick and choose what what's going to work for them. Not, not everything I have to say applies to everyone, but all the information is good in rounding out a person's general knowledge about the music industry. You may be an artist and think you just need to focus on music, but not nowadays because it's a relationship business. You need to, you need to know, you need to know how to network in a room full of industry professionals with confidence. Yeah. And you need to know how to write an email. Let's say you're trying to get your music on a particular TV show and you want to reach out to a music supervisor. Well, there are certain ways of doing that that can be catastrophic to your career. There's ways of doing that that can be very helpful. I'll give you an example. Let's, you know, you're a music supervisor. You're, you put yourself in their shoes. They're being shocked all day long with people who just, all they want is to get their music in their film or TV show. They're basically saying, I want you to help me make me a star. Make me a star. Make me a star. Make me a star. That's all they hear all day long. Make me a star. All right. And along comes an email that says something like, thank you for taking the time to read this. I've done some research on you and your show, and I'm pretty confident that I have some music that you'd be interested in at least considering. And may I send you a song or two? Compare that with someone who sends an email, Dear Music Industry Professional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you've lost them already, right? Because you know they haven't done any personal research. Yeah. Right? They've already lost. Dear music industry professional, attached are 30 (laughs) of the 157 songs I have in my library, each in a different style, so you can see how versatile I am, so you'll always have one place to go to get all your music needs filled. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now... And then, wait, and then there's an attachment with 30 MP3s on it, which, by the way, music supervisors hate because it bogs down their emails and they spend their time deleting those emails, which is not what you want. Yeah, yeah. They actually want links to songs unless otherwise requested. Yeah. <laughs> so compare and contrast those two emails. It's almost laughable, but you know which one's going to get more attention uh, positively, and which is going to be a turnoff. Sure. But you'd be surprised at how many people think 
the latter would be the way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, tell me about the Music Success Retreat. Periodically, I throw on these uh, retreats in Malibu, California, the Malibu Beach House Music uh, Success Retreat. And uh, they're all on my website at joesolo.com. And this is like a full weekend from Friday night to Monday morning where people from all over come in. There's only room for 30 of them. It's very personalized. And I teach a lot of this great inside material throughout the whole weekend. I also bring in a panel of eight or nine top industry professionals, A&R people, publishers, music supervisors, so they can pick their brains directly, get some really great information. And then afterwards, we all have dinner together, a catered dinner, where the, uh, where the attendees can start their own relationships with these professional gatekeepers of the industry. And between the education they get from me and the networking they get from networking with the other attendees, as well as the, the industry guests, they can shave off many years of career development in a single weekend. And then two to three weeks after the retreat, I give everyone an hour one-on-one -on -one consultation, just me and that person putting together a specific roadmap of what the next steps are for their specific career path. So they're not just getting information and contacts and knowledge, they're getting also a plan to tie it all together that's customized for them. Very cool. That is the Music Success Retreat. It's life-changing. Have you been doing it for a while? Oh, yeah, I've been doing it for about five years now. And um, each one is different because of the makeup of the people. Mm-hmm. And they've all been successful. I've never not, I've never had any empty seats, but there's only room for 30 people. I keep it real small. And in terms of people staying, the beach house is like a mansion and it can sleep 15 people. So there's 15 tickets there at the level where you can stay overnight. And I stay over too, so they can pick my brain and hang out and, and, uh, like I said, it's life-changing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, sounds very cool. Definitely. One last question. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Well, other than my best advice, which is don't quit ever, but a good piece of his business advice would be you want to always be on the right side of the deal. And I'll explain what I mean by that is whenever possible, you want to be in an ownership position, whether it's owning your own masters or making sure you've got equity in a song in terms of publishing splits. Like here's, okay, you know, actually, let's just talk about that. When you're co-writing a song with somebody, everybody's buddy, 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 but if they don't discuss how to split the ownership of that song, when there's a big treasure chest full of gold in front of them, greed takes over yeah. and destroys everything. And I could tell you horror stories. In fact, I go over this uh, in my retreats and in my various talks. But the way to handle all this, quite simply, is to sign a split sheet at the start of the process 
either before you start the song, you agree, hey, we're all going to split it, even Steven, and we'll write the best song that we can, and everybody wins, all right? Or at the end of the writing process, uh, you can say, well, okay, I felt my contribution was worth 60% or 10% or whatever. It's a lot easier to just split things evenly and then write the best song that you can. File that, sign that piece of paper delineating the splits, the date, and the song title, and your names. And then you can file that piece of paper away and pretty much forget about it. And it will it'll prevent so many problems later on when people have what I call creative rememorization. <laughs> and also, you got to copyright your songs. Those two things, sign split sheets and copyrights, because you also have to be careful of unknown third parties coming out of the woodwork once you're successful and making claims to songs that you have no idea who these people are. And this happens all the time. Maybe somebody wrote a song with somebody else that you don't know and forgot to mention that to you or forgot all about them. And then the song becomes a big hit and that person comes out with a copyright and, and a recording and, and takes, you know, a big chunk of the ownership away and credibility away from you. Sure. You know, that's why trust and character and authenticity and your reputation are so important in this business. Probably the other piece of advice I want to leave everyone with is you got to act with character and, and be trustworthy and honest. Cause at the end of the day, if you're going to last in this business, it's all going to be based on the positive reputation that you have. Because everybody knows everyone in the business. It is a small, 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 small business, small world. And if you've got a stellar reputation, that speaks volumes about your whole professional music history. If you don't, that scares people. And there's lots of opportunities that will never fall in your lap that you didn't know you missed just because you didn't guard your reputation and act as wholesomely and authentically and honestly as possible. So be real. You can find out more about Joe and his programs at joesolo.com and joesoloproductions.com. That's all one word, joesolo.com and joesolo, S-O-L-O, productions.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnerscircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnerscircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts to your new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.